Please stand as you are able for the reading of today's New Testament lesson from the book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of those from Cilicia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people as well as the elders and the scribes. Then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And all who sat in the council looked intently at him, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Jim, thank you for your prayer this morning and reminding us of the significance and sacred nature of this weekend. I know uh, many of you, I hope you heard from me yesterday, uh, the prayer that we shared together as a community uh, on the 20th anniversary of September the 11th. Uh, Jim, thank you for praying for us today. And Mason, uh, that's, uh, that's quite a backup group of singers that you have with the praise team today. Uh, we're so, so grateful, aren't we, for our youth choir to see them back in force as we're rebuilding that together. James, thank you so much, Patsy and to our youth, it's just wonderful to hear you and, uh, and for you to share with us in such a special way. We'll hear more in a few minutes from them. Is, uh, is Dr. David Davis in the house today? Is David here? Uh, I have a dear friend, David Davis. Uh, we call each other Dr. D, uh, who's in ministry, and he's to be with us today. And it's a great joy to welcome him and to see him. So let's get to the text. We come to the midpoint of our study on the book of Acts, which we have referred to not as the Acts of the Apostles, but as the Acts of the Holy Spirit within the Apostles, the continuation of the ministry of the risen Christ. We're at the midpoint, week six, of these 11 messages on the book of Acts of the Holy Spirit. And we've been reminded over the last five Sundays that as disciples, you and me, we are not self propelled. We are not self-made. We are not self-sustained. We are endowed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. That is, by definition, the presence of the risen Christ within us, living within us. We are endowed and empowered, as we've said, week one, to stick together as a family to share our witness beyond these walls, week two, to heal and restore, especially the outsider, week three, to endure opposition, that was week four. And last week we talked about the fact that we're empowered to adapt to a wavering world of need out there. Now this morning, I want us to think together 
about how the Holy Spirit empowers us to sometimes face hostility, to sometimes face harassment or persecution, not in spite of our confession, but because of our faith. Now, I want to remind you something of you already, something that you already know, and that is in the Greek language in which the New Testament was originally written, the word witness and martyr, same word in Greek. In the first century, to be a witness for Christ was risky business, and it's also true in the 21st century. It's risky business to be a disciple of Jesus. The first Christian martyr was not one of the 12 apostles, though all of them save one died a martyr's death. In other words, all of them were killed because of their faith, first century. But the first Christian martyr was not an apostle. It was one of the seven deacons that we talked about last week in Acts chapter 6. Namely, the guy's name was Stephen. His name means crown. He was a Hellenistic Jew appointed to strengthen the relief effort of the early church for the marginalized, especially for the widows. He was a part of what they would have called their fishes and loaves ministry to those in need. Stephen was commissioned by the apostles to serve, to be a diaconal ministry, which means he was really about pastoral care. He was not commissioned to preach. And yet, as is so often the case, the Spirit enables us to do abundantly more than we can ever ask or imagine. And so Stephen preached. There are 19 sermons in the book of Acts, 28 chapters, 19 sermons. In other words, one-third of the book of Acts is dedicated to the apostolic proclamation of the church. Most of the 19 sermons come from Peter and Paul, but the one from Stephen is the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. In fact, if you read the next chapter, chapter seven, it takes up a whole chapter. 60 verses, one chapter, Stephen's sermon. Now I know, and let me just let you know that I know, that some of you think, in your opinion, that a good sermon is a short sermon. And I'm sorry to say you may be in the wrong place this morning. Sermonettes, I think, produce Christianettes. Spiritual formation teaching from the pulpit is absolutely necessary, and you can't rush it. There's a humorous story in Acts 20, I love this story, where Paul got so wound up preaching one night in Troas that he preached till well after midnight. And, and there, was a, there, was a young, there was a young person, a young man named Eutychus, who was obviously in the Troas Youth Choir, and he was sitting in the windowsill on the third floor where they were worshiping and he went to sleep right in the middle of Paul's sermon, fell out the window, died. Uh, one commentary, believe it or not, actually says that, that it must have been the vapor from the oil lamp that got him. You know that's not so. It was the sermon that got him. And down he went and Paul in his goodness ran down three flights of steps and revived him, brought him back from the dead. I don't know that I would have been that gracious, Jim. <laughs> but he brought him back. It's the longest sermon in the book of Acts. Somebody told me recently, in fact, they emailed me, a senior woman emailed me 
She said, Pastor, I haven't missed a single sermon of yours since COVID started in 18 months. And I felt pretty good about that until she added, just last night, I went to sleep by the sound of your voice. (laughs) Well, thanks a lot. But I can say with assurance this morning that there wasn't nobody sleeping the day that Stephen preached. Preaching can get you in trouble sometimes. Preaching, I would define as tightrope walking without a net underneath. In fact, one British evangelist said it like this, if Jesus preached the same messages that ministers preach today, he would have never been crucified. And that's not a compliment. Francis de Salas said the test of a preacher is that when he's finished, his congregation goes out not saying, what a nice sermon, but goes out saying, I gotta do something about that. That's the test. It'll get you in trouble. I've been doing it for 39 years and I've been in trouble a lot in my time. Someone will ask me occasionally, I think they're just greeting me, they'll say, are you staying out of trouble? And I'll say, no, the nature of what I do usually is trouble. It was trouble for Jesus. You remember the response of the hometown synagogue in Nazareth to his first sermon? If you don't, let me give it to you. Luke 4, 28. The congregation was so filled with rage that they led Jesus to the brow of a hill on which the town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. Whew. Must have been a good sermon. By the way, if you didn't know, that's what we do to blasphemers. According to the law, you hurl them off the cliff and stone them. That's what they did to Stephen. Now, let me give you some some context. Let me just give you a quick history lesson so that you'll understand a little bit more about the context of Acts chapter 6. Stephen, as I mentioned last week, was a Hellenistic Jew. What does that mean? What it means is that Stephen, ethnically speaking, was Jewish, but culturally speaking, he was Greek. In other words, unlike the Hebraic Jews, he wasn't raised in Palestine. He didn't speak Hebrew or Aramaic, he spoke Greek. I mentioned last week there were numerous synagogues in Jerusalem in the first century, and like many of our churches today, they were segregated by language and culture. And it was the same in the first century. The specific synagogue that Stephen was a member of was known as the synagogue of the freedmen. That was in the text. You remember that? Freedmen. In other words, the makeup of that synagogue were former slaves or offspring, descendants of slaves, that had been exiled or banished by Pompey, who was the Roman general and statesman, in 63 BC. Many of them since then had bought their freedom and returned home to Jerusalem from places like, was mentioned Cyrene and Alexandria, where's that? North Africa. And Cilicia and Asia, where's that? Southern Turkey. Now I'm guessing, I think there's evidence that Stephen was actually converted to believe in Christ by Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, that's Acts 2. Stephen was one of the 3,000 that was baptized on the day of Pentecost. 
And he is described in our text that Gigi read as being full of grace and power and performing signs and wonders among the people. Ever since Pentecost, all he talked about was Jesus. Every Bible study, Jesus. Every church supper, Jesus. Every youth meeting, Jesus. Every trustees meeting, Jesus. Every choir rehearsal, Jesus. But his newfound confession, his newfound faith in Jesus was not necessarily in tune with his synagogue. They had concerns. Some tried to tone him down. This Jesus is Lord business was causing some trouble, especially with the temple crowd. And so these freedmen, these ex-slaves, saw the rub that was happening between the Sanhedrin, that is the religious council and the apostles. And after their experience and their history in the last century, they weren't very thrilled about getting into hot water with the religious aristocracy or the government. And so they argued and debated with Stephen, but I love this line, but they could not withstand the spirit and wisdom with which he spoke. The Holy Spirit is empowering him to preach. And so this group, freedmen, they did what sometimes we do when we're losing an argument. They engaged in a smear campaign, mudslinging. They went after his character. They accused him of blasphemy. Jim, you talked about heresy. They accused him of being a heretic. Blasphemy is an act or offense of speaking profanely or sacrilegiously about God or sacred things. By the way, they charged Jesus in the same way. On one occasion, can you believe it? Some of the synagogue folk actually accused Jesus of being Beelzebub. (laughs) They said, you're of the devil. It is interesting, isn't it, how low we can go when we insist on being right. Arthur Schopenhauer, who was a German philosopher, said something that's pretty profound. He said, all truth passes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. And third, it is accepted as being self-evident. Isn't that right? The gospel in the first century is between being ridiculed and violently opposed. Well, what, what was the beef? The synagogue folk had two issues with Stephen. Number one, he's altering the law of Moses, they said. He's changing the customs of our people. And number two, he's dissing the temple. And again, I want you to notice this echoes the experience of Jesus. In fact, the story of Stephen is an imitation of Christ. Do you remember the hornet's nest that Jesus got into when he was preaching on the mountaintop and he said, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, what was he doing? He was reinterpreting the law. He was reinterpreting the scriptures in a way that the Pharisees didn't jihaw with. You know that word, jihaw? 
It's a Hebrew word. It means jihaw. It means he didn't mesh, he didn't align, he didn't conform necessarily. And the Pharisees concluded that Jesus is negating the law. But Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. There's a Jesuit priest who was from India named Tony DeMello who said this, listen to this, to be properly wicked, you don't have to break the law, just observe it to the letter. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill the spirit of the law. That's what Stephen was doing. And in Stephen's case, they bring him to the church council. This is what we're supposed to do in Matthew 18, right? If you have a problem with a member of the synagogue or the church, you go to them personally, then you take two or three, and then you bring them to the council. You bring them before the body. And they did that to Stephen. And I want you to listen to verse 15. This is my favorite line in the whole story. And they looked intently at him and saw that he had the face of an angel. Hmm. What does that mean? It means that in spite of this persecution, he wasn't hostile, he wasn't defensive, he wasn't arrogant or rude. In fact, he doesn't refer to them as numbskulls, but when he begins his sermon, he calls them brothers, sisters, and they saw that he had the face of an angel. In other words, they saw Christ in him. Now, this reminds me of an earlier scene in Acts. This is chapter 413, where they brought Peter and John in for questioning before the council. And when they saw the face, the countenance of Peter and John, and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that they had been with Jesus. Well, it's perceptible, isn't it? It is apparent when you have been with Jesus and it's apparent when you haven't. What Stephen does next in the context of this council meeting I think is absolutely brilliant. When a person is charged with blasphemy, which is a crime punishable by death according to the Mosaic law, that person is given a chance to respond, to rebut the charge. And that's exactly what Stephen does. He does it by opening the scripture. He begins to reiterate, to recapitulate the Torah. He exegetes the scripture before them. This is why the sermon is so long. He, he's giving the whole Bible, he's summarizing the whole Bible for them and he begins with Abraham and summarizes the history of Israel from Abraham to Joseph to Moses to Solomon and all the prophets. But here's the thing. In Stephen's synopsis, he doesn't highlight their chosenness. That's what they're used to hearing. He highlights their resistance. Boy, that's a part of my story too, isn't it you? If I had spent in my life more time submitting to God rather than resisting God, things might have been a lot different. 
He summarizes their story by saying, when you read the scripture, you see the resistance of the people. And then he illustrates the point. Joseph, who saved the region from the famine, was initially thrown into a pit by his brothers. He was rejected by his own. He was trashed by his brothers, sold into slavery, and jailed on false charges. And yet this one who was rejected became the prince of Egypt. Moses, who delivered the Hebrew slaves out of Egyptian oppression from Pharaoh, at first was rejected by his own. They said, who made you ruler and chief over us? And in spite of the fact that Moses got them out of slavery, they tried to go back to Egypt. In fact, the scripture says that while Moses was on the mountain, Sinai, receiving the law, the people in the valley made an Egyptian idol, a golden calf, in order to help them feel more secure. Talk about blasphemy. I don't know if you know about it or not, but we have a pretty poor history in our culture when it comes to responding to prophets. J.I. Packer, who wrote a classic book called Knowing God, said this, we complain today that preachers don't know how to preach, but is it not equally true that congregations don't always know how to hear? The conclusion of the message is a disaster. The conclusion of a message is always key to the point, right? When Stephen says, there's one more thing and I'm through, that's the key part of his message. And his final word ignites the rage of the people. He said, you stiff-necked people. Boy, anytime you use that line in church, you're in trouble. You stiff-necked people, this is the conclusion of his sermon. You who are uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are forever resisting the Holy Spirit just as your ancestors did. Which of the prophets, he said, did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one. And now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the one who has received the law as ordained by angels. And yet you are the ones who have not kept the spirit of the law. Well, it goes south from that point on. And they take Stephen, this Hellenistic Jew, to the cliff. And they push him off and they pick up their stones just as the law commanded. This is Leviticus 24, 14. Take the blasphemer outside the camp and stone him, whether foreigner or native born. When they blaspheme the name, they are to be put to death. And that's exactly what they did to the letter of the law. But just before Stephen lost consciousness, they heard him muttering a prayer. Lord Jesus, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Sound familiar? And then with a final breath in a loud voice, he said, Father, don't hold this sin against them. Sound familiar? What's he doing? He's imitating Jesus. He's becoming like his Lord in the face of hostility, forgiveness. But there's one other thing. 
as they were stoning Stephen, they laid their cloaks at the feet of a young Cilician from Tarsus. You know anybody from Tarsus? A Hellenistic Jew named Saul who was a member of the Freedmen Synagogue who had sat in Bible studies maybe with Stephen and now he's holding the cloaks which is a sign of his approval that this man should die. I don't think Saul ever got over it. I don't think he ever got over what he saw that day. In fact, I think it was Stephen's death that led to Saul's vision of Jesus. And it wasn't just what he did. It wasn't just what he said. It was really what he did. Saul was willing to kill for his faith. But Stephen was willing to die for his faith. I thought about it yesterday of those planes and the men who, who drove those planes into the tower were willing to kill because of what they believed. And the first responders were willing to die for what they believed. Suffering love, like Stephen, who was imitating Jesus, changes everything. Last word. When I was a boy growing up in Nashville, the ministry of David Wilkerson had a profound effect on me. Reverend Wilkerson wrote a book called The Cross and the Switchblade. Some of you read the book, some of you saw the movie. The movie had an impression on, made an impression on me. This man, David Wilkerson, from Barnesboro, Pennsylvania, a little town in PA, as a young preacher, ministered to gangs on the streets in New York. And one of the gang members, one of the ringleaders, was a young man named Nicky Cruz, who was terribly violent, who carried his switchblade always with him, and a bat. Wilkerson decided that he was going to do whatever it took to win this young man. He went after him almost every day. He would tell him how much he loved him and how much God loved him. At one point, Cruz became so irritated with this young preacher that he threatened him. He said, if you come to me again, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> to which Wilkerson said, Nicky, you can do that. You can cut me into a thousand pieces and lay them in the street and every piece will still say, I love you. Nicky said, I could not fight this approach. If he had come at me with a knife, I would have fought him. If he had come begging and pleading, I would have laughed at him and kicked him in the teeth. But this guy was willing to risk his life for love's sake. And it broke down all my defenses. And I couldn't resist it. Because, said Nikki, it was clear to me that this man had been with Jesus. David Wilkerson was imitating Jesus. Between David Wilkerson and a Hellenistic Jew named Stephen, we discover that suffering love always breaks down our defenses. In fact, through Christ, it is the redemptive remedy that empowers us to stop resisting. 
and start responding and to face even our difficulties as those who seek to imitate Jesus. And when we do, there's someone on the sidelines holding a coat that sees it and it becomes life-changing. That's the story of the book of Acts. And that's the gospel. May it be so in me, in you, for Jesus' sake. Amen.